Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the rain. Ask you to refresh us this morning with your word. Lord, we thank you for the children being with us. We ask that you would refresh them, Lord, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would speak to parents, speak to children, speak to all of us, Lord, in the way that we need to hear you, in the way um, that can get to our hearts this morning. We trust in your spirit to do it. We know that we can be very weak listeners sometimes, that it goes in one ear and goes out the other, and that's true for children as much as it is for adults. And so we cry out, Lord, let some things settle down into us and bear fruit today. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Wednesday morning, I'm driving to work. I have the shortest commute known to man. I could walk it in eight minutes. It takes me probably 30 seconds to drive. And I caught uh, just this little segment of um, a radio interview. Well, on Wednesdays is typically when I, I will write out a sermon and I didn't quite have an illustration. And lo and behold, the radio gave me my illustration. It was an interview uh, with the world's worst mom. Anybody heard of her? Five years ago, Lenore Skenazi let her nine-year-old son ride the subway in New York City by himself. And as a result, not surprisingly, she got a lot of negative attention, and she was nicknamed World's Worst Mom. Well, she kind of ran with this. She's embraced this. Um, She's written a book. She has now begun to promote the uh, free-range parenting movement. And I couldn't help but laugh because it sounds like chicken, free-range chicken. But it's free-range parenting movement. And so it's it's trying to correct this, this other parenting approach called the helicopter mom approach or sometimes helicopter dad where you're always hovering over your kids. And, and so she's saying, no, we need to, to have a different approach to that. Well, she's also uh, now the star of a reality TV show, and maybe you've seen that before, called World's Worst Mom, when she works with parents to help them overcome their fears and be less controlling and all those sorts of things. Well, today one can find unending resources on parenting. Books, blogs, websites abound, giving advice and arguing for every type of parenting philosophy imaginable, be it free range or helicopter or somewhere in between. Strangely, though, there seems to be an unfortunate correlation between the amount of parenting advice available and the level and stress felt by parents today, especially moms. Being a mom is hard enough. It's always been hard. But it does feel like the culture has added a pressure that that anxiety has gone up and there's this cacophony of, of parenting voices creating even more pressure on moms to get it right. But with the pressure, there's more confusion because which voice do you listen to? Should we stick our kids on the light rail, send them uptown, and allow them just to to roam around? Or should we lock them in a padded room with a bag of Cheerios, hide the keys, and let them out when they're 18? And those would be organic, gluten-free Cheerios, of course. So is there a a way to push through this, this noise and this confusion and embrace a parenting philosophy that is time tested and enduring? Well, I think there is. For the last few Sundays, we've been considering gospel-filled relationships from the book of Ephesians. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just for the vertical relationship between us and God. It's also for the horizontal ones, 
between human beings. And not only does this gospel uh, speak wisdom, give the best advice imaginable, it also provides real power for real change. The power source for that change in relationships we saw a few weeks back is being filled with the Holy Spirit, not once, but over and over. Go on being filled with the Spirit. That was the command that sort of dominates this whole passage of Ephesians. Go on being filled with the Spirit. Because when the Spirit fills a person or fills a community, one of the things that begins to happen is relationships function differently. If you want to see a real sign of Holy Spirit revival, you look for relationships changing. Well, we've seen that at the center of a gospel-filled relationship is this practice of submission practice of submission, which we've defined in a few different ways, but one way I've said is to come under another for their good. Coming under another for their good. Or laying down our own rights in order to serve someone else. Now Paul is going to apply this practice in different ways. He even uses different words to to fill out its meaning because relationships are different. They all have um, different order to them, and, and Paul's going to talk about marriage and, and parenting and, and uh, slaves and masters. And so he has these different relationships, and there's authority involved in some of these. And so he has a certain way that he wants uh, this to look like, but generally speaking, we all practice submission. And that's how he started in Ephesians 5.21 with this uh, submitting to everyone, mutual submission we called it. In any relationship in your life, no matter if you sort of have greater authority or you're under someone, you always can find a way to lay down your life to come under another person and to lift them up for their good. Last week, we considered marriage. And if you missed that, even if you're not married, I would still encourage you to go back and to listen to it. It's on our website. This morning, we're going to look at this passage where Paul speaks to children and to parents. He's addressing families because the nuclear family is the basic building block of society. It's at the center of God's plan for humanity. Right there in the beginning, we have marriage and then we have this this desire for multiplication. But the family, like everything else, is broken, damaged by sin. And so Paul is going to apply the gospel to it. He's going to show us what a gospel-filled family can look like. Who in this room has ever baked a multi-layer cake? Wow, quite a few of you. I'm surprised. Uh, I've never done that. Um, But I think I understand the process that you you bake the layers separately, right? And And then you stack them on each other later. And then you put icing on it and decorate it, and it becomes one nice, beautiful cake. Yeah, Joe's tracking with me. Well, today, I'm gonna I'm gonna preach a multi-layered sermon. I'm actually gonna preach five sermons. Five different sermons, and then we're going to lay them on top of each other, and hopefully in the end, uh, it'll be one nice, big, delicious sermon on parenting. And I have invited older children, and thank you, children, for being here, and parents for allowing them to be here, because Paul specifically speaks to children in this, in this passage. So children, let me just talk to you for a second, and, and, and teenagers as well. You're normally here anyway, but um, it, it, for the children, it's not normal for you to sit through a sermon. And it might be a little boring, and you might want to let your mind wander. And so I'm going to, that's fine. There's five sermons. One of them's for you, and it's not very long, and I'll tell you when we get there. So you can tune out, you can uh, draw, do whatever you want to do. I'll let you know when we get to your sermon. 
So children, adults, anybody who has a Bible, go ahead and open it to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Keep that open. We're going to keep looking down at the verses. Sermon number one. This is for parents. Its title is Children, colon, Free Moral Spiritual Beings. Look at verse 1. Very first word Paul writes. Children children. He's speaking to children. Now that is unusual. Not necessarily in our culture today, but back then that would have not been normal. You see, we have all of these other examples of what's called a household code. That's what Paul's writing here. He's, he's speaking into the ancient household and the relationships that were found therein. Now we have other non-Christian examples of that, but they don't address children or wives or slaves for that matter. They would say something like, hey, parents, or probably fathers, you better make sure your children obey and do the right thing. But no, no, they wouldn't have spoken to children because children didn't have any social status at that time. But the Apostle Paul, following the example of his Lord Jesus, dignifies children. He welcomes children into this conversation. They are here in Holy Scripture. He addresses them as full members of the Christian community. And so I want you to picture in your mind all these, these little house churches gathering around. They were going to hear publicly this reading of this letter from the Apostle Paul and children would have been sitting there like they are today listening to this reading. And so he speaks to them. This is a sign of the gospel. Yes, Paul is going to uphold some of the normal social expectations of the day in that children should obey parents. We'll get there. But he doesn't just bless everything that was going on. Instead, he inserts the gospel into the relationship by treating children as these free moral spiritual beings. He's speaking to them. Why? Because they have the ability to hear and to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. And parents, this has huge implications for us when we realize that God sees our children as, as he made them, as they are, these free moral spiritual beings, it should impact the way we parent. And so let me highlight four quick implications. You could probably think of some more. First, we can't control them. Now, you've probably figured this out already. God has created our children, even our young children, with a will. Need I illustrate? And I promise God didn't give the children a will just to make our lives difficult. He gave it to them because it's a gift. It's a part of being human. It's what they will need to respond to him in love and in service and in worship. Now, when the children are young, we, we heavily influence their will and we actually make decisions for them. But as they grow more and more, we, we can't control them and we actually want them to use that will. Now, I was talking with another dad the other day, and he had really told a horror story about, about teenagers, and I was, my eyes got real big, and I said, well, well what, what's it like, you know? Like, what's that going to be like? And uh, he had this great phrase. He said, we have a ton of influence, but no control. A ton of influence, but no control. That's the way God set it up. He doesn't want us to control our children. They're not robots. They're free, moral, spiritual beings. That's why Paul speaks to them. My question for us parents is, do you see your children that way? Do you see them as God sees them? 
Second implication, we must parent to the heart. We must parent to the heart. A robot will respond to external commands. You can program a robot. You cannot program a child. You must get to that child's heart because for a free moral spiritual being, the heart is the control center. That's where the will makes its decisions. That's where true obedience comes from. Now, you may be successful uh, for a time in conforming your children to your will, but if you never parent to the heart, as soon as that heart begins to desire something else, you will lose them. Prophet Jeremiah talked about a time when the law of God would be written on our hearts, and that was for all of us. That was part of the gospel. But it's a great picture for parenting. We want to teach to the heart. We want to shape what they desire and love because in time, that's what is going to influence their will. Third implication, and this is a big one. You're not a failure as a parent if your kids make bad decisions. Part of them being these moral beings is that they have to make their own decisions. Now, God asked parents to influence their children, to train them, to discipline them. We need to be faithful to that. We will, as parents, give an account to God for how we trained our children. But God will not hold us responsible for their decisions because they're their own moral beings. They will make decisions and God will hold them accountable for those decisions. Now, I don't want to diminish our responsibility as parents because it's a great one. And I think um, we can... Uh, really influence a child well or or influence a child poorly. But I think a lot of parents, um, as young children, teenage, and certainly of adult children, can carry a lot of guilt for the decisions their, their children are making or have made. Or sometimes it's not guilt and shame. Sometimes it's pride. Sometimes we think, look at me. Look how well my children turned out. Or sometimes in pride, it's actually judgment. We, We look at someone else and we say, man, those parents are not doing a good job or didn't do a good job because we see the decision of the parents. Some of that may be true, but we don't know. It's a free, moral, spiritual being that's making the decision. Obviously, our influence can have a big impact, but it's not mechanical. It's not automatic. The reason we know that is some parents faithfully train their children. Um, they, they bring them up in the faith. They, they discipline them well. They're loving. They're not too, they do all the right things. And what happens? Their children grow up. They reject the faith. They make terrible life decisions. And we can't explain why. And then on the other hand, you have these parents who are abysmal failures. Maybe whatever it was that, 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 that really broke down their parenting and maybe they themselves rejected the faith and didn't take their kids to church and cursed God and what happens to the child? He grows up and he meets Jesus and he becomes a servant of his in his kingdom. So it's not just automatic thing. Why? Because our children are free, moral, spiritual beings. So have a measure of grace when you judge yourself, when you judge others based on the way the kids have turned out. So that's the bottom layer of the cake. That's the first sermon. Let's sit that out on the counter to cool. Sermon number two. Children, this is for you. Teenagers, it applies to you as well. It's not very long, so just listen for a couple of minutes. Verses one, two, and three of Ephesians six. Paul is going to tell you something really, really, really important. He's going to tell you to obey 
and to honor your parents. Obey and honor your parents. And let me just tell you three things about this. First, you don't have to obey and honor your parents. I know, it's funny. That's a strange thing. That I just told you how important it was, and now I'm saying that you don't have to do it. You can actually choose not to obey your parents. I mean, you do it sometimes, don't you? They can't make you obey. Now, they can make life very difficult for you. They can give you lots of consequences, but they cannot make you obey because to obey and to honor them is a decision that you make where? In your heart. Deep down inside, you have to make that decision. Now, they're hopefully going to teach you to do it, but you have to choose whether or not you're really going to obey from your heart. And the beautiful thing about God, your Father who loves you, is that He has given you the ability to make that decision. So that's the first thing I want to tell you. The second thing is that obeying your parents is part of your relationship to Jesus. That's why he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. If you have your Bibles, you see that little phrase, in the Lord? He's saying, hey, this is part of your relationship to the Lord, which is Jesus. I hope that each of you has a relationship with Jesus. He wants to be your friend. He wants to walk with you in every circumstance, the bad things and the good things, and he wants to be your king. He wants you to say, yes, I will do that. Well, as your friend and as your king, this, this Jesus who loves you, he says, will you obey your parents? Will you respect them? Will you honor them just, just as you do to me, your Lord? So that's the second thing. The third thing, it's almost done. There's a promise that goes along with obeying. Now, I don't know what it's like in your houses, but sometimes in my house, depending on what it is, we will give a reward for something that a child has done really well. Well, God promises something similar here. He says, listen, listen. This is the first command with a promise. If you obey, if you honor, if you respect your parents, then God promises that life will go well for you. Now, he doesn't tell us exactly what that means. I don't think it's candy. I don't think it's a toy, but I think he really means it. I think there is some incredible blessing that he wants to give to children as they obey. He says it right there in Ephesians. So, remember those three things. You don't have to obey your parents. You have to decide in your heart to do it. They can't make you. Second, Jesus, your friend and your king, he, he wants you to obey your parents. It's part of what he's asking you to do. And third, if you do obey, then God has great, great rewards for you in your life. That's it. You don't have to listen anymore. You might want to. You might learn something. You might want to remind your parents later what they were supposed to remember, but you don't have to listen anymore. Sermon number three. Parents, this is for you again. The title is Don't Ignore It. Don't Ignore It. So we cannot make our children uh, obey us or honor us, not truly, not from the heart, but we can heavily influence them and we should we can teach them we can train them the importance of obedience and honor so if our children disobey or disrespect us we cannot ignore it we must address it if we don't if we just let that go we're teaching them that it's okay now there are strict parents 
and there are freeform parents. There are parents with lots and lots of rules and there are parents that have hardly any rules. And I know that there's this range out there, but regardless of where you fall on that scale, every parent must teach their child the importance of obedience and honor. Even if you have no rules in your family, there's one rule that every family should have. Children should obey right away and with a respectful attitude. They should obey right away and with a respectful attitude. If we allow our children to ignore our instructions, to make us ask 10 times before they respond or they do respond, but they smart off and they show a really dishonoring attitude, we have to address that. If we don't, we're saying, you know what? Obedience isn't that important. You know what? Honor really isn't that important. It's optional. Or just, hey, just do it when you get around to it, when it's convenient. Now, in the immediate effect, that's going to have some really bad consequences in our family. But it's also going to produce bad fruit later in life with teachers, with coaches, with bosses, and unfortunately, spiritually, with their Heavenly Father. If they disobey you, if they disrespect and dishonor you, and you haven't taught them not to do that, what do you think they're going to do with the Heavenly Father? I want to refer you back to three weeks ago to this sermon on submission and authority where I suggested that God gives authorities in our lives for what? To punish us? No, for our good. To protect and promote shalom. Shalom is this Hebrew word, peace, well-being, flourishing. Your children will learn the goodness of authority from you. That's the primary place where they learn it for many, many years. And so if we allow disobedience or disrespect to go unchecked, we teach them that it's fine. You can spurn authority. Dads, let me speak to us for a second. You must be involved in this. You must be involved in this. At the end of the day, refer back to last week, as the leader of our families, we have this responsibility. This is something incredibly important. You don't let your wife carry the burden of this. Yes, maybe she's home. Maybe she has more interactions. I don't know how your family is, but you back her up. You support her. You lovingly establish a home where obedience and respect are held up. And if you see your children disrespecting or disobeying their mother, you don't sit there and you let that fly. You address that head on. I learned that lesson the hard way. I think once or twice I seriously disrespected my mom and my dad, rightfully so, addressed it head on. And I knew that was out of bounds. It's both mother and father, but parents, but fathers in particular, I'm just, I, there's a tendency sometimes to let the mom handle it. You have to be involved. You have to uphold this. Sermon number four, the cake is getting taller. This sermon is entitled, How Not to Parent. How Not to Parent. Look at verse four. Um, Paul has now shifted and he's uh, speaking to fathers. I don't know what your translation says, but a lot of them will say fathers. That's the word in the Greek text. But it really uh, applies, I think, equally to mothers. So let's, let's just say parents. And what he writes is, do not provoke your children to anger. Do not provoke your children to anger. This is Paul's one command on how not to parent. Well, let me suggest three ways that we can provoke our children to anger. There's a lot of ways, but let me put three of them here. Uh, first, we provoke our children to anger when we parent in anger. Let's be honest. Children can make us crazy angry. You might not even thought you had the capability of anger until you had children, and they do things to make you mad, and they do foolish things. 
Raising children, um, whether it's their fault or not, can be incredibly tiring, frustrating. And so it's not always wrong that we feel anger. Sometimes our anger is justified. But even if it is justified, and sometimes it's really not, we don't use the anger to parent. Because if we do, if we use that anger, that motivates us, we're parenting in anger, what do you think is going to happen? You put anger in, what are you going to get out? Anger. We're going to provoke them to anger. Now, for some children, that anger will come out. So you'll have a yelling match. You'll yell at them, they'll yell back at you. But for other children, they won't express that anger. They'll still have it, but it'll go inward. They'll bury it. And that's the kind I'm even more afraid of. Now, if we feel anger, it's real. And we shouldn't stuff it either as parents. We have to deal with it. We have to model, actually, what it, what it looks like to say, hey, anger's real. And, and so, children, here's what it's looked like. We can express it. We can, we can talk about it. We don't always have to stuff it, but we express it in responsible ways. We have to have those strategies uh, to deal with anger with our kids. So maybe you need a mommy or daddy timeout. Ever use that for yourself? Put kids in timeout. We need to put ourselves in timeout sometimes. We need to take a couple of minutes to walk away, make sure the kids are in a safe situation, and go somewhere where we're safe, where we can appropriately express our anger and calm down. Maybe if you have two parents in your home and you're both there and this can work, then, then you have just an agreement between the two parents of, hey, we're not going to pair it on anger. And so if I'm in that place where I'm incredibly angry and I know I'm about to lash out of that, then I'm going to say, hey, Paisley or hey, Randy, or who, will you step in? Will you handle this? I need to take a couple of minutes back. And you have that agreement. Probably the best way to deal with our anger is to pray our anger to God. And I'm not sure that we always do this. I think we, we have a sense of the unholiness maybe of our anger. We're ashamed of it. We don't want to offend God. And so we might really not deal with, it with him, but he, he can take it. I mean, read through the Psalms. Goodness gracious, that is an angry book. I mean, they're always expressing their anger over different things and they're pouring it out um, before God. Sometimes they even have a sense of, hey, where are you, God? I mean, it's okay. He can take it counselor once told me that anger really follows the path of least resistance. Like water, it always flows downhill. And too often, children are that path of least resistance. They're downhill. And so our anger flows towards them, but we should take it uphill. We should take it to God. Pour out our anger before him in a safe place. Not only can he take it, but he's the only one who can really transform it. He's the only one who can begin to work inside of us and bring out a different kind of character. So that's the first way we can provoke our children to anger is to parent in anger. Second, we give commands without teaching and encouragement. We give commands without teaching and encouragement. If we load up expectations and instructions and rules on our kids, but we don't ever stoop down to help them, that's going to make them angry. This stooping down, this is a form of submission for us as parents coming under them. I think there's at least two types of help that our kids need. Uh, sometimes they don't actually know. They don't have the skill or the knowledge to do what we're asking them to do. And so maybe we've come up with this idea or we're saying, go do this, but we're not willing to patiently teach them. 
The other day, I'm in the kitchen, and, and uh, one of my children is, is cleaning up with me, and, and they have this responsibility to, to sweep the floor, and they usually use this little kind of broom and dustpan, and they had moved on to the big one, and they, they just weren't doing it well, and I was just barking commands. Just do it, like, come on, just do it, no, no. And then I realized, they don't know how to do it. I stopped, I got down on their level, and I apologized with tears from that child because they were so hurt. And then I tried to patiently explain, this is how you use this broom. Sometimes our kids, they just need to be taught. And if we're loading up the commands but not teaching them, it's going to exasperate them. Jesus was critical of Pharisees because Pharisees would load up the burdens on the backs of people, but they wouldn't lift a finger to help. And parents, I know we're busy. I know we're stressed. I know, hey, yeah, there's 10 things going on. I don't have time to deal with you. Well, we need to find time because otherwise we're going to slip into that pharisaical mentality. So that's one type of help they need. They just need the, the instruction, the skill, but other times they just need the encouragement. They, 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 they know how to do it, but they need you to get down on their level and be with them and be present with them. God doesn't send us off and say, you go do that. He says, I go with you. I go with you. Before he gives us any command to go and do, he always says, come and see, come and be with me. And then we'll go out and we'll do it together. My spirit will be with you. And we can uh, model that as, as parents, especially if you notice your child is discouraged. Maybe it's not best to just say, hey, go clean your room, to say, hey, you need to clean your room. That still needs to happen, but I'll go with you. And I'll help you pick up some toys. And I'll talk about your day with you. So we provoke our children to anger by parenting in anger and by loading up lots of instructions on them without teaching and encouragement. Third, we provoke our children to anger by never apologizing. By never apologizing, admitting we're wrong, and asking for forgiveness. Parents, newsflash, our children know we're not perfect. They already know it. Even if they can't articulate it, they know it. They know what sin is before they know the word for sin. They know something's not right. One of the best things we can do is just to admit it. When we're wrong, to confess it, to ask for their forgiveness. And some of you are parents, a lot of you are parents in here of adult children. Maybe you never did this growing up. There's no statue of limitations on apologies. You can always go back and take responsibility for that. If we're not saying we're sorry, when we're truly wrong, it produces a deep resentment in our children, just as it does in any other human relationship but they don't even have the capability to really deal with it, but it produces this anger, this resentment. You know, aside from obedience, I want to hold that up as probably one of the most important things we can model and teach to our kids, but the other thing is grace. We have to teach our children. We have to model grace. We need to offer them grace when they mess up over and over, but we also need to say, hey, we need grace too, and, and ask for their grace. And I don't know what... what being a parent is like for you, but I'll just say, sometimes it overwhelms me. And sometimes I, I, I sit, think to myself, man, I am, I am not cutting it. And my, are my children just gonna be screw-ups when they grow up? And the thing that I come back to is, yes, but if I could just teach them the grace of God, because at the end of the day, we're all screw-ups, friends. I mean, we, we put you know, civilized faces on it, but we're all incredibly broken, sinful, needy people. And if we could teach our children that God's grace is large enough to deal with that, one of the ways we have to do that is to say, I'm broken, I'm sinful, 
and I need grace from God and grace from you. The fifth and final sermon, the top of the cake. It's entitled, The Goal of Biblical Parenting. The Goal of Biblical Parenting. Paul defines the goal also in verse 4. He says, don't provoke them to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There are a lot of voices out there, aren't there, telling us what successful parenting looks like. Sometimes it's the nutrition voice. Sometimes it's education. Sometimes it's social development and building confidence through activities. Teenage years, it can focus more on grades and college and then career prospects. And we spend a lot of times with books and blogs and websites. We'll get a lot of answers. And all of those things have their place. But Paul really simplifies it for us. He says, the goal of biblical parenting is the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So what are those? Well, let me try to break it down into three C's. The content of the faith, the character of the faith, and the correction of the faith. So first, the content of the faith. We need to pass on the biblical faith to our children. We just need to pass it on to them. And we do that by raising them in church, taking them to church regularly. Even if your child doesn't seem to express a lot of spiritual interest, don't underestimate the power of simply bringing them to church. We also can do it by modeling in the home, reading the Bible at home. We can um, use certain educational tools. One of the, the ones the church has used for hundreds and hundreds of years is called a catechism. It's kind of fallen out of favor, but I think that's something we need to recover. It's just a, a systemized way of instructing our children in the content of the faith through questions and answers. The Anglicans just came out with a great one. And you can get a copy of that and you can use that at home. I know this can cause more anxiety in some parents because we start doing the same thing. We say, well, well, am I doing it right? Am I, am I doing it enough? Well, there's no one right way to do it. You probably are doing it more than you realize. Try different things. See what works in your families. Goodness gracious, don't make it harsh. Don't, don't make it legalistic. Don't force it onto them, but continue to offer it and demonstrate your own love for the faith, for the scriptures. They'll notice. So that's the content of the faith. Second, the character of the faith. Yes, we want them to know the content. We want them to know all about things. We want them to have Bible uh, literacy. But the real goal of Christianity is just not to know about it, but to, but to know God personally. And really, not just to know God personally, but to have the person of God come out in our characters. And so we have to help play our role in shaping the character of our children. We need to teach them how to pray. We need to teach them how to worship. We need to talk about uh, the fruits of the Spirit and the Beatitudes as these things that are birthed in them. And what does it look like to cooperate with God the Holy Spirit to cultivate those things in our lives? We need to train them in spiritual disciplines, things like prayer and fasting and Bible reading and some of those things we mentioned. We need to let them be nourished by the sacraments of the church. We need to have our, our goal and our aim not just to train the mind, but to train the heart the dreams, the desires, their imaginations. So we have the content, we have the character, and finally, we have the correction of the faith. The correction of the faith. Paul uses these two words here, discipline and instruction. Instruction can also mean warning. So, so discipline and instruction or warning are, are part of good parenting. We, we must help our children choose good, not evil. When they make bad decisions, they need to be warned and disciplined, not in a punitive way. When you discipline a child, you're not punishing them. You're training them. You're 
think of discipline um, as like training of an athlete, as like just any um, training you can imagine. We have to be trained if we want to live in these things. I think discipline really has, has fallen out of favor as a parenting philosophy. I mean, there's some other things that are going on there, but it seems too harsh to many. It seems unloving, but actually that couldn't be farther from the truth. Discipline is a part of love. I refer you to Hebrews chapter 12. God's talking not just about um, children, but all of us as his children. And what does he tell us? That God disciplines those he loves. That it's actually a legitimizing thing, that if he didn't discipline us, then we wouldn't be legitimate children. It it feels funny, but it's actually a a sign of love to discipline a child. And, And the same is true in our circumstances. You might not feel that these discipline, this correction, this warning, doesn't feel loving, but it is. And maybe you've had those experiences, hopefully not in anger, but when you sat down, you've disciplined a child, and then afterwards there's this immediate fruit of love and of peace. And that's what Hebrews 12 goes on to say, verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And you better believe your children will resist the discipline. It's painful rather than pleasant. Same thing for us with God. We don't, we don't even want to do it. But later, but later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And I've watched this play out over and over. There's some days I'm tired. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to get up. I don't want to have to address it. But if I don't, what happens? It keeps going and I get more and more frustrated. If I take the time to calmly address it, to discipline my child, not as punishment, not in anger, but as training, it produces fruit. It's amazing. It happens. Sometimes it happens immediately. Sometimes it's hours later or days later, but it happens because God has shown us that's the way it works. So there we go, five layers, one on top of another. And I just want to finish by putting a little icing on this cake. I think this is the sweet part that holds it all together. And the icing is just the same theme, I've already talked about it, of mutual submission, of laying our lives down. Yes, in a family there's order, there's, there's parents, there's children, there's obedience. But when we boil it all down, it really is submission both ways. Is that not what we're called to as parents? But to lay our lives down over and over and over in so many different ways to lift up our children to the Lord when they're little, when they're growing up, when they're grown up, it continues. We, we come under them, we lift them up to the Lord. Is that not what our Heavenly Father did when he sent his son Jesus Christ to go all the way down into obedience, into death in order to lift us up to be part of the family? So regardless of what age your children are, there's this sweetness of a gospel-filled family. It is laying our lives down in love, coming under another, lifting them up for their good. Let's pray. Father, there are many different stories in this room of how we were raised, if we have children, how we're now doing that as, as parents. And Father, depending on our experiences, this, this, we hear these words differently today. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit would, would take them and would insert them into our stories in just the right way, that we can hear it, that we can respond to it. I pray for our children, I pray for our parents, that whatever seeds of uh, goodness and truth were from you today, that you would plant them deep in their hearts. And that this afternoon and this week and going forward, they would bear great fruit. We pray these things in the name of the Father 
and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.